0: welcome to the adirondack lantern podcast the official podcast of the north country underground railroad historical association where our major goal is to foster understanding of the underground railroad history of northeastern new york and to celebrate its significance and its relevance to our own time welcome to the adirondack lantern podcast season one episode two uh, I am John Mitchell. I'm proud to be a board member of the North Country Underground Railroad Historical Association and I'm joined by some of my fellow board members today. We have Mrs. Bobby Perez. How are you Bobby? I'm doing well, thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. We have Mrs. Robin Cadell. How Hi, are you Robin? How's everyone? Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. And we have our uh, board president. Uh, Mrs. Jackie Madison. How's it going, Jackie?
1: Going fine and looking forward to this <laughs> podcast. So hello, everyone.
0: <laughs> hey. And last but not least, we have Miss Andrea Baer. How are you today?
2: I'm well, John. Thank you very much. I'm ha- happy to be here. Hey,
0: fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I'm really excited about uh, about this month's episode. It's something we've been talking about um, for, for quite a bit. Um, but before we get into the meat of everything, uh, any uh, Bobby, do you have anything that you'd like to share about the museum or anything coming up right now?
3: Oh, I sure do. We finally have a training date set for May 22nd for docents, those people who would like to volunteer to be part of our, our welcoming and interpretive uh, for the, the museum. It's going to be on Saturday, May 22nd from noon to two o'clock. And we're going to provide a bag lunch for everyone. Um, it will include um, explanations of the exhibit, um, the covert protocol that's going to be put into place, and, uh, and safety concerns. So uh, we really would love you to consider uh, joining our group.
0: Excellent. I, I was actually, I had a few people at the school that I work at today ask me. If we're opening this year and people are I, I think people missed not being there last year. So uh, wow. yes,
3: definitely.
0: Absolutely. Anybody else have anything you'd like to add? Jackie? Yes,
2: you know, um Bobby, you should um I w- you should take this opportunity because we're almost halfway there with the with the opening because of the volunteers that we had last Saturday that came over and helped us to clean up. That's so, right. Bobby wanna send a little thank you to all those help helpers that we got.
3: Oh my gosh I really do. Um, the museum grounds look so trimmed up and prepared. The inside the interior has been swept and mopped the uh, windows have been cleaned. Um, I know that we had members from the Sydney Plattsburgh student body came. we had board members that were there. We had um, a family we had three children we're doing raking so all together um, all that effort. Definitely got us ready for our Memorial Day opening. So, thank you. Thank you to everyone. And thank you, Andrea, for reminding me to say that. Yes, that Love so My Part
2: Day was a big help.
3: It sure was. Absolutely. Yeah. And we got a green bandana, fluorescent green bandana. Uh, uh, I uh, yes. part of uh, Part Day New York. And uh, <laughs> this is the first year that we have uh, registered for that. And I think so successful. We're definitely going to keep that keep yes, that up.
1: yes. Do you want to let them know when the museum will be opening?
3: Well, we'll be open at that Memorial Weekend, um, that Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and the Memorial Day. So um, we will be open during the summer on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and it will be by appointment. Okay, um, and I think that we're going to have a QR box, little QR system so that you can just automatically uh, use your phone against that QR little. Square, and it will put you right in touch with our appointment schedule. So you can register right outside the museum, actually.
0: All right, so um, I think we'll go on and get into um, um, our main line topic. Um, Robin, I know that you recently had a a, a fantastic interview uh, with uh, Miss Amy Chen. Why don't you tell us about that?
4: Okay, I first met Amy when she came to the North Star Underground Railroad Museum with Ed Joe and they came with staff from the Museum of Chinese in America who were documenting a Chinese ledger that was on loan from us from is it the Port Henham Historical Society Jackie Yes it was yes so they were copying that ledger cuz one cuz this Chinese ledger Uh, went to what was called the Chinese jail in Port Henry, where hundreds of Chinese men were detained in the early 20th century, who crossed the border into the United States. When the transcontinental railroad was built across the country here and in Canada, many Chinese men came here to build that. And so once that was completed, they were no longer wanted, there was, um, anti-Asian sentiment against them that was passed into law, hence the Chinese Exclusion Act. So some of the men, they left Western United States, Canada, Washington State, places like that. They went up to Vancouver, Canada. They took trains across Canada and many dropped down back into New York State or into Northern Vermont or thoughts elsewhere along the border to try to gain entry back in the United States. Some of these men had been born in the United States, others not. So Amy Chen's grandfather was one of these men. And so Amy in New York City is a genealogist and president of Bank Chinatown, which is a nonprofit based in Manhattan's Chinatown. And their mission is to foster intergenerational community through neighborhood engagement storytelling and the arts. So this is Amy's segment, part of it. So maybe we can go back to that time when you came to the North Country in search of your grandfather.
5: Yeah, yeah, I've been doing a, um, you know, I've been teaching a lot of genealogy workshops and um, I mean, this all started in, 2012, 2013 um, and um, I was working with the New York Historical Society in Manhattan and they were putting together this exhibit on the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, A lot of Americans don't know the history of um, how Chinese were uh, and later uh, most Asians were excluded from immigration to this country. But um, when they were putting together that exhibit, they asked to use my family's story as uh, um, the, the, as part of the exhibit, and um, to you know, kind of put a human face to it. And so, I had done all of this research on my family's immigration history. Um, we have a lot of family records, um, and you know, of course, looking in museums and in archives, trying to find. Um, Things like ship manifests um, and uh, old photos and piecing together that story. Um, And then that eventually became an exhibit called Chinese American Exclusion Inclusion um, that exhibited at the New York Historical Society, then it traveled to the Oregon Historical Society and now it's in San Francisco. It's the um, permanent exhibit at a museum called the Chinese Historical Society of America that is in San Francisco Chinatown. So anyway, that's kind of a a roundabout way to say how I ended up (laughs) in the North Country and meeting you Robin. Um, In uh, in the course of my research on my family, there was, uh, I found a record that uh, dated 1903 in Port Henry, New York uh, for my grandfather, my paternal grandfather. And it didn't match the story that my family um, had passed on, which was that my grandfather came in 1911. So I felt I had to track this down I, to see whether this record was my grandfather or if it wasn't. So I don't know if uh, you've heard this story before, Robin, but um, this record was a, uh, a uh, court document releasing this man named Bach Ying um and as a US born citizen. Um and they had arrested him crossing the border from Canada into New York State. And it was during the years of the Chinese Exclusion Act. So he was arrested for entering the country and being Chinese, essentially. And they um and I, I looked at this document, it had been reproduced so many times that um It was very fuzzy, but what I did notice on this document was that there was an outline of a head on it. And that indicated to me that the original document had a photograph affixed to it. So my thought was, well, if I could find the original document, maybe I could take a look at the photo and see if this man is actually my grandfather. Because my grandfather's name is Bak Ying Chin this document only said Bach Ying. And um, it didn't have the last name on it. So it led me on this search. Um, I, I said, well, who is the most important person on this court document? And that would be the judge, right? Who oversaw the case. Those are the records that probably would have been preserved. So I started looking for which repository, which archive would have the judge's records. Um, And the New York Public Library in Manhattan actually had his records. So I was really excited and I ran down there, you know, the New York Public Library is massive and they have so many records and it's, um, it's wonderful what they keep there. And when I got there, they said, well, we have Judge Dudley's records, but only starting from 1905. And so my record was from 1903, two years earlier. So that was a dead end. And um, I thought that, you know, I would just never be able to unravel that mystery. But one day I was up in uh, Ulster County and I was taking a historic house tour. And one of the tidbits that I found out from the docent was that every county in New York state by law has to have a county historian now, the person might not be paid very much. Maybe it's even volunteer, but it actually is a mandated position. So I said, well, there must be a county historian for Port Henry. Um, and maybe they would know where I could find these records. So I started dialing and emailing um, county historians all up in the North Country here. And um, I was uh, I, there are a lot of people who you know, couldn't help me. Um, They just didn't have the records. They didn't know where I could find it. Um, But Betty LaMoria, who is um, at the Mariah Historical Society um, in Port Henry at the Iron Center, she, she emailed me back and she said, well, I'll go to the county courthouse and see if I can find these records. And then she emailed me again. She says, oh, they don't have anything there. And then she said, but I have these books and when I get down to the historical society, I'll take a look at him. And um, I had sent her, you know, the fuzzy copy that I had and you know, what information, you know, I was able to call from my own records. And then the next thing I know, she emails me, this image um, of a mugshot. It's a, and I looked at it and it was my grandfather. Wow. You know, the earliest photograph I have of my grandfather's from 1911 and this was from 1903. But if you put the two photos side by side, you said, well, it's the same man. And I, I mean, I practically fainted when she (laughs) sent me that. Um, And, uh, and that led me on this journey to meeting you, Robin. Right. (laughs) So, um, I mean, after she sent me that record, I was, I was so amazed. I, I. I, I said, wow, well, what is this? You know, why was he in jail? Um, and I had to do all kinds of research to, to find out what the story was and how he ended up in the North Country. Um, and it's a beautiful photograph too, because, you know, he looks really kind of tough and stern in it. Um, and his hairline is um, shaved far back. And what you can't tell um, from, from this photograph is that he probably had... One of the Chinese braids, which was the traditional haircut that right. men had, they would shave the hairline back and then they grew the hair really long in a one long braid in the back, um, and uh, uh, it, it it was it led me on this whole journey of of finding out how my grandfather actually came to be in New York, and it turned out to be you know a journey that he didn't take on his own, but it was. Um, the same journey that was taken by hundreds of other Chinese men um, who immigrated to this country um, and especially um, to New York City. So um, uh, once I got that photograph, I said, wow, this is, this is pretty amazing. And one day I said, you know, I have to see the real thing. I have to go see the original. So um, my husband and I took a long road trip and we went up to the Iron Center, the Mariah Historical Society. And, um, and it, it, I was amazed because it, it was a book that had hundreds of photographs and ledger entries of all these men, when they were arrested, where they were arrested, how long they were um, detained, and then the court dates, um, docket numbers, and when they were released. And you look through this book and you see all of these, you know, these faces. Um, and some of them are as young as 12 years old. And then since I made that discovery, um, I, I, I've been teaching genealogy workshops. I help other people find their uh, Chinese American roots. And I think to date, I have helped find the ancestors of six other people in those jail ledgers.
4: Wow. So take us back to your grandfather's life in China before he came here. What have you uh, learned about that journey?
5: Uh, My grandfather, it seems, is uh, one of two sons, and he was the second son. And he lived in a small farming village in southern China. They were farmers. Um, I think as the second son, the way the inheritance um, practices go. Um, you are not the first to inherit anything. So um, I think it was an incentive for him to try his hand at going overseas and, um, you know, trying to uh, make a living. Also, at that period of time, uh, many Chinese men from this part of China went to other parts of the world. Um, some of them were in South America, some of them went to um, Indonesia, um, Southeast Asia, um, and some of them to the United States. Um, It was actually up until I would say um, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, most of the Chinese immigrants to this country came from this one area of Southern China. Um, So uh, yeah, I think my grandfather had um, a a hard life, um, you know, as a farmer. And, um, uh, you know, he was coming here to you know, find a, a better way. So do you have a hypothesis about why
4: so many men came from this one region in China?
5: Well, I, I think that there's a couple of reasons, um, you know, and maybe the most basic one is access. It's a coastal okay. region. Um, so, you know, it's, it's easier to get out than if you were inland. Um, It also is, you know, historically, um, the trade between the West and China was centered in this area. Um, A lot of people don't realize, like, how intertwined Chinese history is, and, um, you know, with American history. So, um, for example, you know, after the end of the American Revolution, you know, the 13 colonies were broke. They just um, spent all of the, their money fighting off the British to gain independence. And you know, quite honestly, the American treasuries were empty. And at the time, China was uh, the richest country in the world. Oh. And a lot of American uh, wealth was built on the China trade. So if you think about the Boston Tea Party, Right, the tea that was dumped into Boston Harbor—that was Chinese tea. So a lot of the uh, the traders at the time would um, import Chinese tea, porcelain, and silk, um, and they would trade, you know, like fur pelts and um, silver for it. But um, you know, if you you scratch the surface of some of the earliest um, capitalist families in America. They had a, a hand in the uh, China trade. Do you ever watch um, Antiques Roadshow? Of course. Some, sometimes people come on Antique Roadshow and they they bring a canister, a tea canister mm-hmm. that early uh, uh, colonists put tea in. And more often than not, it had a key, a lock and key on it. That was how valuable Chinese tea was. Um, you you might be too young, Robin, to remember A&P Supermarkets.
4: Oh, no. We had one in Eastern Maryland. We had an a yeah. and
5: I <laughs> went there. Well, A&P Supermarkets actually started out as the Great American Tea Company. And they were uh, purveyors and traders in Chinese tea. And they were based in lower Manhattan. So, you know, it's kind of funny. I think people think of uh, Chinese Americans as being relatively new immigrants, but Chinese history is, is really much entwined in American history. So, I mean, to think about the an iconic supermarket chain like A&P having its roots in Chinese tea, it's pretty interesting. Um, and, you know, after, so I was saying after the American Revolution, when the treasury was depleted, the best idea that the new Americans had for refilling the treasury was to send a ship called the empress of China, wow. to China to buy silk and tea and porcelain and um, Chinese cotton and bring it back to America and sell it for a profit. That's how they refilled the American treasury after the revolution. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's it's amazing how most people today don't know that history. Um, also, uh, you know, there were actually Chinese men who served in the Civil War on both sides. Um, there's a man named uh, Joseph Pierce, and uh, the uh, Parks Department did this study a couple of years ago of Asians who served um, in uh, the Civil War. And you see this picture of him his name is joseph pierce but he's obviously a chinese man who adopted (laughs) an anglicized name um there's also things like um the uh the bing cherry that we think of as being you know quintessentially american cherry but it was developed by a man named ah bing who was a gardener chinese gardener I like those stories very much. I do too. <laughs> but it's amazing how much of this history gets has has gotten lost. And I, I you know, to bring us back to my grandfather's story um, and the North Country, you know, I think about how that story was lost. So right. at the time my grandfather came in um, 1903, there was this period of a couple of years where, um, because Chinese were being violently driven out of towns and cities across America's West, Um, the uh, uh, Chinese immigrants said, well, you know, it seems like it's friendlier in the Northeast. And so Chinese uh, immigrants started coming uh, to the Northeast. um, And the way they would do it, this was my grandfather's journey and the journey of um, hundreds of other Chinese men is they would land on the West Coast of Canada by ship. And, um, you know, we all know that the Chinese helped build the Transcontinental Railroad in America. Um, after that was built, they also helped build the Canadian Railroad. Right. So they would land on the West Coast and they were familiar with the railroad. They would ride the rails uh, across Canada and then they would cross the border into New York State. And that was the route my grandfather took. Uh, some of them uh, crossed the border into Vermont. Um, and then also some in you know Detroit and Chicago area. But um, so during that period of time in, in 1903, I mean, if you look at these jail ledgers there, I think are 800 entries in there. So for the period of uh, 1900 to 1903, um, it documents 800 um, Chinese immigrants across the border. And these jail ledgers are not comprehensive. I mean, it's amazing that they exist at all. Um, you know, so it's really just a, those 800 men are just a subset right. of the uh, the Chinese uh, immigrants that that crossed um, into the country. Um, I know that Malone, New York, was also a popular entry point, um, but uh, there's no jail ledger for that we know of that exists for Malone. Um, so uh, these these are these are these jail ledgers are a very rare and um, valuable uh, artifact. And it's right there in Mariah.
0: It was an amazing segment that you had there, Robin, with, uh, with Amy. I'm actually looking forward to hearing uh, the rest of her interview um, in our underground track segment there.
4: I learned a lot, especially about the A&P and Bing Cherry. I could relate directly to that.
0: You know, it's funny. We used to have an A&P here. Do uh, you remember that? There used to be an A&P out by, the, out by where the movie theater um, is now.
4: I don't remember that.
0: Yeah, yeah, a long time ago, there was an A&P here. I never would have, you know, put two and two together like that, you know. I also thought it was fascinating how she mentioned, you know, that uh, there was even some, like, people as young as 12 in some of the books and stuff that she looked at as far as, I think she said that even people that young were um, incarcerated for certain things back then.
4: Yes, basically, they came here as workers, and we still see that, Type of thing today, if you think about it, there are many people here who are workers who come to work, and they're allowed to be here until they're not allowed to be here, as in the case of these Chinese boys and men.
0: Wow, that's unbelievable. It is it's, it's wild just how intertwined, you know, American history is well with Chinese history, and it's, it's, I'm fascinated just by I mean, just in that brief period of you know, of discussion, just how many things that I learned is it's amazing how history just can get lost, you know, so Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I think our, our next thing we're gonna move on to is our Adirondack uh moment here. Um This month's okay. Adirondack moment actually is gonna uh a uh, feature of Christina Hartzell and I think that uh, Andrea can uh, enlighten us a little bit about that.
2: Yes, thank you John. Um, we couldn't have chosen a better organization which is our neighbor here, the ADK Action. They are an amazing um, group of people just trying to bring, keep the other beautiful and in the meantime have it more accessible and more affordable and more just inclusive um, for the people living here and inviting others to come. And I think um, as we speak with Christina today, she'll go in, go more in details, but I want to just point something out that just came to me. The last broadcast we did for the Adirondack moment, Bobby interviewed Tim Brissett from Our Sabre Chasm and Our Sabre Chasm is the platinum sponsor for um, ADK Action and I just wanna give the, the um, sponsors as a board member, I wanna give them a shout out and just say thank, thank you very much for the work you're doing to help ADK Action help the people within the Adoranda, um communities. So without any further ado, um, I just go over to Christina Hartzell from ADK Action. She's a communications coordinator and she will tell us a lot more about what's going on. Thank you.
4: Welcome to the Anirondack Lantern Podcast. So what we do in our segment called Anirondack Moments, we try to highlight a local organization or agency. And so we have picked your agency, Anirondack Action. So please tell us who you are, what your mission is and what you do.
6: Great, happy to. Um, so I'm Christine Hartzell. I'm the communications coordinator at ADK Action, and um, I I work um, I've worked there for about a year. So if I if I get anything wrong, that's uh, you know. New. Our, so at ADK Action, our mission is to create innovative projects that address unmet needs, um, promote vibrant communities, and preserve the natural beauty in the Adirondacks. And I think the unmet needs is the very important part of what we do. We have nine different active project areas right now, um, and they each one of them is kind of designed to meet one of those unmet needs. So some people get to know us through something like our emergency food packages project and are suddenly surprised to find out that we have community arts festivals as well. It seems like how can one organization do all of this? Um, But each one of our projects is kind of designed to meet a specific need in the Adirondacks that we see that is not being met.
4: So what unmet needs did you address during COVID?
6: Great, so um, during COVID um, we pivoted pretty rapidly, um, we canceled all of our arts events, obviously, and focused on our food security work. So we, our, our big project during COVID um, that was launched right away uh, in March was our emergency food packages project. So the, through this, we partnered with uh, the Hub on the Hill in Essex, New York, which is a, a, a food producing hub that a lot of farms use to get their products out there. And we partnered with them to get those food uh, products that were not then being sold or at restaurants or um, at schools. And uh, we got uh, those into emergency food packages, a weekly box of local products um, that were delivered for free to uh, residents throughout the Adirondacks. And we partnered With a number of different organizations to um, identify the people that would need those most Um, and uh, through that we our first ones rolled out uh, i believe the first week of april in 2000 and uh, through generous support from the adirondack foundation um, i think about 700 individual donors um, and grants from new york state health foundation and the mother cabrini foundation we ended up totally shattering what we thought we were going to do with the emergency food packages and delivering, I think, almost 65,000 meals across the region between uh, April and October of last year. Um, so we have since transitioned that program um, into something that is called Fair Food Pricing, which is a subsidy program that we are running to help people in who need a little extra help to afford locally grown food. Um, so people in asset, uh, let's see, it's asset limited income constrained um, households, which is above the federal poverty line. So you can't get SNAP benefits, um, but can apply for fair food pricing and then use that at the hub on the hill. And we're rolling it out with a couple of other area vendors um, to help that uh, those households uh, eat local a little easier it can be a little difficult to afford local food but it also it really helps um, our local economy and the farms in the area so it's just a win-win-win for everyone.
4: So what coming events do you have this spring? What can we look forward to?
6: Great I'm very excited about um, some of our events this year because we're we're getting back into being able to feed the soul as well as the body <laughs> in this sort of uh, reawakening after, after all the COVID lockdowns. Um, so we, of course, still have a lot of events that are going on on Zoom, like everyone does these days. Um, our pollinator project, which uh, we have that um, works to uh, promote uh, native habitat for pollinators in the region Um, We have been hosting a series of pollinator happy hours uh, where folks can join Zoom and uh, we talk about like how to plant uh, your pollinator garden. People can ask their questions of experts that we have on the call, Um, you know, what plant works in shade, what's deer resistant, what's the best for attracting butterflies and not wasps, um, all of that stuff. And um, so we've been doing a series of those. We have Two more coming up. One is this coming Tuesday, um, May 4th. And then the final one will be June 1st. Um, So that's very exciting. And that's um, also together with our, uh, we're having a annual pollinator plant sale. Um, It's almost sold out though. So um, a lot of the people attending now have ordered all of these pollinator plants and they're gonna try and figure out where to put them. Um, so I think that our most exciting event coming up is our Keysville Community Arts Festival that we are planning for late July in Keysville which is also where our office is although we work around the Adirondacks um, that is where most of our staff calls home so uh, and Keysville is also one of the uh, focuses of our community revitalization projects. So for the last few years, we have had um, plain air festivals where artists come and paint on plain air or um, out in, in the fresh air. And then at the end, we have an art show and, and sale where folks can come and buy these just beautiful paintings of Keysville and surrounding areas. And as someone who lives here, I've never seen Keysville looks so beautiful as in these paintings. Um, But this year we are expanding on our plein air festival. We are going to uh, have not just the plein air component but also we will be having a community mural that is going to be painted um, with artist Georgianne Gaffney is designing it. Um, She's based in Saranac Lake and we are partnering with Outside Art in Plattsburgh to help us get it done. Um, They have done a number of beautiful murals up there and facilitated that process. So uh, people in the area will be able to come to some some mural painting workshops and paint a little bit of the mural and whenever they go by it, they'll know that they had a hand in it. We're also going to have a student art contest uh, where students in the area can submit their artwork. Um, we're coordinating with some of the local libraries to uh, to collect the artwork so that students can drop that off. Um, and then we'll be displaying those um, artworks in the windows in downtown Keysville for everyone to see. And um, we're gonna award a prize for each uh, age category. I believe the prize is age appropriate art supplies and a $25 gift certificate for ice cream at Stewart's. So (laughs) (laughs) I am a little sad that I'm ineligible because that would be amazing prize. Um, And then uh, one of the other components of the Keysville Community Art Festival is that artistry community theater based here is going to be doing um, an outside uh, performance, I believe, of a musical called Into the Woods that is based on some of Grimm's fairy tales. So we've got performing arts and all kinds of arts going on. And we're also going to be encouraging businesses and organizations in and around Keysville to participate in um, in whatever way they would like to in in terms of the arts and also looking into um we're going to have a passport where people can go and check out all these different things and uh if they if they check it at all out and they prove it on their little arts passport uh they can drop it in for a prize at the end of the f- of the festival so we're going to have a lot of fun events going on we're very excited that we're able to do all of this and that so much of it is is outside and it's all gonna be very COVID safe um, and just so different from last year. Very nice.
4: <laughs> so where will the mural be located at? You know what building in Keysville?
6: Uh, yes, I, I'm not sure it's totally finalized yet, but I believe it's going to be on the side of Adirondack Hardware, the hardware store down downtown Keysville. Do you know the theme of it, what what it will depict? Uh, the theme of the mural is uh, what brings us together. And I believe it's going to depict um, various animals that are representative of like the region and things that everyone here enjoys. So I think there is talk of um, some some fish swimming and just deer in the... The artist is still working on the mock-up, so I really can't wait to see it. But from what she showed me of her idea board, it looks like it's going to be really beautiful.
4: So is there anything long-term that you're working on?
6: Oh, long-term. With nine active projects, sometimes I feel like a long-term is like the end of next week. Um, <laughs> You're looking at everything all the time, and, and it's, it's very exciting. Um, but long-term, uh, we are part of the um, Adirondack Food Systems Network with um, the Adirondack Health Institute that just started, and our executive director, Brittany Christensen, is the co-chair of that. So through that, we are long-term working to uh, build uh, a food system network in the region where all different parties in uh, kind of talk to each other. And we find like collaborations in between um, the different sectors um, instead of being totally blind and just in our, our own areas. Um, so that's something that's kind of developing long-term. Um, we've also been working on uh, reducing road salt uh, in the area that is Affecting our drinking and groundwaters, and so this uh, this coming fall, a piece of legislation that we were working to get approved that had passed um, will will begin um, a road salt reduction pilot throughout the Adirondacks for three years, um, and so we are we're part of like a working group for road salt reduction, so that that will be a, a long term. Thing that we are working on in the coming years as well. Oh, uh, and our Adirondack Pollinator Project has also set a goal, I believe, to increase the amount of native um, plant habitat for pollinators over the coming years through practices like uh, reduced roadside mowing and planting of beneficial pollinator plants along roadsides and working with the Department of Transportation to do that. So I'm sure that's also going to be a long time uh, area that we're working in.
2: Robin, if I could just jump in here for a minute, I've been listening. My name is Andrea Baer and um, Christina, Um, I just want to say full disclosure, I also serve on the board of the um, ADK Action and I'm so proud of this organization, they're truly um, a people kind of group. They really goes out, go out and help the community. And another long-term um, project that you guys are working on is the broadband. And we know we need that all over the up, upstate New York here. So that's oh, another yes. yeah, Christine, if you want to elaborate on that a little bit.
6: Gosh, thank you, Andrea. I, I can't believe I forgot broadband because uh, we just, I just spent so many the I just spent the other week um, talking with Dave Wolf um, is is our board member that heads up our our broadband for all project. Mm -hmm. And he is a retired IBM um, worker who has, for the last 10 years or so, he has been just dogged in making sure that people are not slipping through the cracks up here um, Mm -hmm. in in terms of broadband coverage. Um, So he has been working to... Map um, households that are not being covered by broadband, um, and also to make sure that in the the buildouts from the there's a spectrum buildout and a new New York broadband program from from the state, um, and so both of those that you have to claim that you are expanding um, the broadband and sometimes it's easier to claim a house that you basically the the fiber cable went right by anyway or the cable internet um, and just connect it um, so he's making sure that the the people that really are kind of up a dirt road and the the most expensive for the Broadband companies to extend their network to to make sure that those people are getting prioritized for the expansion of the network. So this the mapping project is just so interesting to me, um, because as as a really data driven organization like just the the steps that you have to take to make sure that uh, Every every address is counted correctly. Um, It's kind of an immense amount of data that Dave is dealing with. And he also holds a a monthly uh, call for all kinds of different people in the region who are interested in broadband uh, issues. Um, So they just check in with each other, there's updates, um, collaborate. And then out of this kind of came this newly formed Uh, North Country Broadband Alliance, uh, and this is something that is just happening with a couple of counties that are signing on, um, so that they can share their data as they map um, all of these households and make sure that they are being uh, appropriately counted. Um, So it's, it's great that everyone is working together on this project. Um, and especially because sort of the time is running out, I think it's by the end of August uh, is when the, the spectrum build out will be um, basically completed. So it's, it's really the time is now to catch these addresses that are falling through the cracks and, um, and bring them to the attention of the Public Service Commission.
4: So you sound like a small but powerful
6: organization. So how big is your staff? Oh my goodness. I'm one third of us. (laughs) And I do have to say, I used to be a member of ADK Action and I was always so, I mean, I'm still a member, but I was always so impressed with everything that they are getting done. And, uh, you know, when I saw that they were hiring someone just like me, I was like, I want to be on board with ADK Action. Um, They're great. And I got there and I was like, oh my gosh, it's just a few people. I can't even believe that we get this much done. And I think Part of it is um, just our our board participation. I believe I mentioned that each project has a board lead. Um, our board is is super involved. Um, in in everything that we do which has been really great and we are also a very volunteer driven organization so a lot of people go to our website and fill out our volunteer form um, indicate what kind of things they would like to do and then we'll send them out an email and say like hey we're we're planting some pollinator gardens or um last november we went and spread uh pollinator friendly seeds at saranac lake community solar farm so that around the solar panels, there would be more more pollinator habitat. Um, And of course, a number of our emergency food packages were also delivered by volunteers that tirelessly came and and packed up the boxes or delivered them week after week. Um, So we would, our staff of three might be, um, you know, it's greatly supplemented by volunteers and our board participation and just people that really like to be involved.
4: Uh, we want to thank you for spending this time with you. Is there anything that I didn't ask, or we haven't addressed that you want to uh, depart with?
6: Oh gosh, um, I just <laughs> I think that the thing that I love about ADK Action um, and that I love working for ADK Action is that with these different project areas. I don't know if you have ever heard someone say, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Um, I feel like we have the whole toolbox. So if there is a problem and it doesn't require a hammer, it's okay, we have a screwdriver, like we have the right tool to meet that need. Um, And if we don't, then through our community partnerships. You can go borrow that tool, like, you know, when you need to go borrow a circular saw from your neighbor. So I just feel like this is such a great model for um, getting things done and really uh, rolling up our sleeves and taking a look at what needs to be done. How can we best do it? Is anyone else already doing it? um, And how will we know when we're done? So I, I just, I think it's really great. And um, we just love being part of the community here as well. Well, thank you for joining us on our second only
4: podcast.
6: So thank you, Christina. I'm happy to join you. And I I just listened to your first podcast this morning and I'm going to (laughs) subscribe.
2: Just want to jump in here a little just a little bit before we go and, and thank mm-hmm. you. I want to echo what Robin says and thank you for joining us and um, I also want to let people know that this is really driven by people like you and I local people and they can always go to our the website adkaction.org and sign up as a member membership goes from students all the way up to corporations as low as $25 you can pay $7 a month for membership. So do what you can um, to keep the Adirondacks beautiful. And um, I just thank you so much for all that you're doing.
0: That was amazing, uh, Andrea. Thank you so much for for introducing us uh, to Christina. So how long have you been involved with uh, Adirondack Action yourself?
2: Um, I've been there now, well, before I became a board member I was um, hired as a contractor to work for ADK Action doing um, basically business development, not really business development, but just um, bringing in corporate sponsorship. So I've visited all the different towns in the Adirondack region, meeting with different organizations and companies and individuals on, uh, you know, or, or local people, trying to get them to sign up to be members so we do have um, a few corporations that are supporting us, you know, as, as um, sponsors. And I mentioned that um, Al Sable Chasm is a platinum sponsor. So they're really coming in full blast to support ADK Action, which is doing a tremendous job. I, I, could, I cannot believe what they've done with the food, the food pantry um, business with, with Hub on the Hill feeding over 65,000 people during that pandemic. And um, this is all local people just hustling around, driving, delivering food and using our local farmers. And and they even came up with the idea to put grocery stores in the pharmacy and spell the name with the F-A-R instead of P-H. I mean, that is just amazing. And it really helps out small towns, especially like Keysville. You know, so they are doing a tremendous job at ADK Action.
0: Oh, it definitely sounds like they do some amazing stuff. And one of the mm-hmm. things she said that really jumped out to me, it may sound like a small thing, but it's a big thing to me, is uh, knowing what plants to, uh, what flowers to plant to, to um, bring in butterflies instead of yes, wasps.
1: And not wasps. <laughs> <laughs> yes. these, these,
0: these wasps are killing me, man. So, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. Well, thanks again for. Uh, for bringing her and that organization to our attention.
2: Very good. Thank you.
0: Excellent. So um, I think uh, we're going to move on now to the, uh, the other half of our interview um, with Amy Chen. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I, I love each of these segments that we've been able to put together um, over yeah. the past couple of months, you know? Uh, so, and I'm, 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 i feel blessed. feel blessed uh, we're in a position to be able to, to, to share this information with folks, uh, so um, here is um, the rest of our interview uh, with Amy.
4: So, tell me about your grandfather's success in the states, about the family he raised here, and you know his legacy.
5: Um, you know, I don't know if if you would call him the most successful guy. <laughs> um, you know, what, what I know about him, he died um, about uh, 10 years before I was born. So I never met him. Oh. Um, and uh, but from what I know, he worked, he worked really hard. Um, the family story was that he came to New York City. He started working in laundries, which um, at the time was one of the few occupations that uh, The Chinese were able to um, be employed in. Um, There was a lot of discrimination. And, um, you know, laundries and restaurants um, were the trades that most Chinese were able to find work in back then. Um, And it's interesting because I have tracked him down working or owning laundries um, in Brooklyn, in Manhattan. But also in Danbury, Connecticut, in New Haven, Connecticut, in uh, Malden, Massachusetts. So he moved around, um, and uh, you know, we we think of um, you know laundry as being a kind of a mundane thing that you could do at home these days. But back then, you know, there were no in-home laundry machines, uh, right. washing machines. Uh, doing laundry was a huge chore, and most people sent it out. Right. So in many small towns and cities um, and neighborhoods, there would always be a, a Chinese laundry, sometimes um, a, uh, uh, and, and non-Chinese laundries, you know, there's, uh, you know, Irish women who came uh, in the mid 19th century also did laundry work. Um, I, uh, I did some genealogy research for a friend of mine, and he, we found out that his Chinese grandfather, was married to a black washerwoman uh, in Philadelphia uh, in the late 19th century. Um, so, uh, but uh, somehow my grandfather, um, through his labors, was able to support the family overseas in China. Um, and he took several trips back to China, you know, um, which was no small feat. Uh, not only was it expensive, but it took upwards of two weeks by by ship and right. by rail. So um, he would work here in America for a couple of years, save up money. He would keep sending money back home to his wife to for his, his kids and his wife. And then every couple of years, he would go back for a couple of months, maybe up to a year or two, um, be able to, I guess, relax and put his feet up. And then he would come right back to the US and continue working, saving money, um, all to support his family. And eventually he was able to bring uh, his children here. And um, my family, uh, my dad was uh, his middle son and we settled in New York and my father had a laundry in the Bronx.
3: Um,
5: And uh, we all grew up um, helping out at the laundry and, um, you know, then went on to college. <laughs>
4: <Right>. <laughs> wow. What a story. Actually, I, in doing, um, early research in Plattsburgh, there was a Chinese laundry in Plattsburgh. I forget ah, the wow. name. There was one.
5: I'm sure. I'm sure there were many. Um, right. uh, if you look at some of the directories and, uh, uh, um, it's kind of, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and you know, in, in, in the jail ledger, like the people that I have helped uh, to um, locate their ancestors in the jail ledger, I mean, they're, uh, they're all very uh, accomplished, you know, amazing families. Um, my, my friend Susan was an assistant commissioner for the Department of Cultural Affairs in New York City. Um, this other guy, this other man, Ed Joe, whom you interviewed, who I brought. Right. Um, is a, a, a marketing executive out in um, Wisconsin, um, and his father and uh, uh, attended the Citadel, um, served in the military. Wow, um, I have a, one uncle um, who also served uh, in the U.S. Army in World War II. Um, so um, it's it's amazing. I mean, you look at the mugshots in that that jail ledger, and you go you know, what happened to these men? And, you know, uh, it's just been so wonderful to find descendants and to see how their families have flourished.
4: So tell me about when the um, people from, is it, is it the Museum of MOCA? I forget what it stands for.
5: Oh yeah, Museum oh. of Chinese in America. Yes. So, so what happened was after I, I discovered the jail ledger, um, Betty Lamoria told me that I was the first person to ever ask to look at these jail ledgers. Okay. <laughs> nope, nobody in the Chinese American community even knew they existed. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful story how um, Betty came to have them They apparently, uh, her uncle salvaged it from a neighbor and the neighbor had had it in his garage for years. And uh, his neighbor was about to toss them. And what I think Betty said, her uncle just loved to read. He loved to read anything. And so he asked to have them. And then they sat on the shelf in her uncle's house for um, many more years. and I think she has a story about how um, her cousin talked about how they sometimes would pull it off the bookshelf and flip through it and wonder who these men were. Wow. <laughs> and then at one point, Betty's uncle donated it to the historical society. So um, when, when I found out about uh, these ledgers, I, I said, well, you know, even the photograph of my grandfather is, is already starting to fade. Um, I mean, these photographs are over hundred years old. Um, and um, I thought, wow, it's really important to preserve them. And I knew that um, uh, the Mariah Historical Society uh, in Port Henry didn't have the wherewithal um, and the resources. Um, so that sent me on like my second quest which is how can I preserve these and digitize them and make them accessible to a wider audience? So um, I approached a lot of different institutions, um, including the Museum of Chinese in America, um, also university libraries, um, also um, the Family Search Library out in Utah and to see who would take this on. And um, you know, I even had uh, people Offer to pay for, uh, you know, donate to pay for some of the digitization. Um, it took me about three years. Um, and, you know, uh, a lot of people were interested, but clearly it wasn't anybody's first priority except mine. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I was, uh, I finally said, okay, well, if nobody's going to do this, I can't get anyone to do this. I'm just going to do it myself. And I'm not a professional in archiving or digitizing things, but you know, uh, I'll figure it out. And so that's how I corralled uh, Ed Joe, whom you met, um, whose grandfather is also in the ledger. And we said, okay, we're just gonna go rogue with this. (laughs) (laughs) I have a really nice digital camera. You know, I have a scanner. Um, Even if I have to go up there and just digitally photograph each page, at least it, you know, it will be preserved. Um, And then maybe we can get volunteers to index it. And, you know, so we had this, we hatched this plan that we would just like, you know, parachute down (laughs) (laughs) and just then you know, however long it took to photograph each and every page. Um, But then luckily at the last moment, I I, I don't know if the, if Yue the archivist at Mocha felt sorry for me or something, <laughs> <laughs> but she, she pulled together the resources um, and we pretty, we pretty much cobbled the effort together. And, and I, I tell the story like, you know, in detail, just really lovingly because I think for anyone listening, um, I just want people to realize that you can be an archivist, you know? You can save history. You don't have to be a professional to do it. But uh, so Yue Ma at the Museum of Chinese in the Americas uh, drove up with some interns and they had these really large Epson scanners that they brought up. And um, we were really lucky that the Underground Railroad Museum uh, uh, provided uh, facilities for us to do this. And um, so, and I brought my laptop and my heavy duty hard drive. and <laughs> So every, everybody and my extension cords <laughs> and we set up shop at the under, uh, uh, North Country Underground Railroad Museum for I think about two days. And we just scanned every page. Um, and then these photographs had backs to them. So the information on the back couldn't be scanned. So Ed, Joe and I, then went through it a second time and photographed the backs of each photograph with my digital camera. Wow. Yeah. And, and then we backed it up on a hard drive. And when um, UMA got back to New York with the, uh, uh, the scanners and everything and the, uh, the, my, my hard drive and the, the backup, they uh, downloaded it, they made copies. Um, And then she had interns go about indexing it. So now there is a digitized indexed copy um, that the uh, Mariah Historical Society also has, and that is also available online um, on uh, MOCA's website. So um, yeah, it takes a village, right? That's what they say, it really took a village. And a couple extension cords from my house. Right. But didn't
4: this also lead to you leading tours in China?
5: Well, it didn't lead to me leading tours in China. Um, but I was, I, the, the whole journey um, took me to uh, leading some tours to China. But okay. after people found out about the research that, that I did, the deep dive in finding my family's history, people started asking me, how do you do that? And can I do that too? So I started doing workshops around the country, showing people how to do this kind of genealogy research. And you know, as with um, many Americans uh, 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 whose families are you know people of color, um, the it's it's not a straight shot in research. There are a lot of twists and turns to be able to find your ancestors in official records right? uh, because we're not recorded in the same way that uh, mainstream, I guess, for lack of a better word, mainstream Americans are. You know, our histories tend to be pushed off to the side or, um, you know, poorly documented. Um, So, um, you know, we do these workshops where, you know, we cover topics like, how do you look up a Chinese name? Because a lot of times the spelling was completely mangled um and uh in chinese tradition you address somebody by their last name first so i would be chin amy and then so what consequently happened in english language records in america is people had their last names turned into their first names and their first names became their last names okay in addition to being misspelled (laughs) because there was no standard romanization of chinese names um, so that's, that's I mean, like a, 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 a real search in and of itself. Um, and then from these workshops, you know, pe- people trace their families back to where they originally um, lived in um, the old country. And uh, some of these Chinese American families are like fourth and fifth generation and have no ties whatsoever to the old country. And so that led to me and some of my other Chinese American genealogy colleagues saying like, okay, let's organize these tours. Okay. Let's go back to the village, you know, um, and find our roots. Um, and so I've, I've done at least three of these trips where uh, we've brought people to the tiny farming village in Southern China, where their families uh, originally left. Um, And I have this wonderful uh, story. I had a girlfriend who couldn't go um, to her father's village um, uh, for a variety of different reasons. And so I went for her. Um, Her father passed away about 10 years ago, and he had left the village in China in the 40s, the 1940s. And I went into this village, and this is um, only a couple of years ago, so... uh, in 2017 so it's a good uh 70 years after the man left the village after my girlfriend's father left the village and i walk in the village and um it's very tiny there's an open uh uh area next to a pond with a big tree and people hanging out under the shade of the tree and there's this elderly man Who's with sinewy arms, he must have been in his eighties, I think, and he's chopping wood. Wow. And as we enter the village, this elderly man looked up and he said, who are you looking for? <laughs> and I said, oh, well, there's no way he's gonna know. You know, my girlfriend's father left here in the forties. It's now 2017 and, but you know, just to be um, friendly. I said, oh, well, we're looking for so-and-so. And this elderly man looked up at me and he says, "Oh, how is that guy?" He'd be about 90 now, right?" He knew he knew. He, and you know he must have been a child back then, but he said, "Oh, do you want to see the house?" They still identified the house in the village that belonged to my girlfriend's father as and and we, we walked down this lane and we, you know, we, we couldn't go inside. It was locked and the caretaker wasn't there, but they, they knew his name and they knew the house and it had been 70 years. Um, and a friend of mine explained this to me. He said, he says, you know, in the village, like, you know, they don't have like internet and TV and radio and all this stuff. You know, people sit around and they tell the old stories um, mm. about each other. And, um, you know, these, these, this collective memory, though, I think is going to be lost within the next 10 years. Um, and so I, I always tell uh, Chinese Americans who are in my, my uh, workshops, I said, you know, if you're gonna go, you gotta go soon. Because, you know, this old man said to me, he says, yeah, I remember, but these young people, he's pointing to people in their 60s and 70s, just <laughs> these young people, they won't remember. Um, but but really remarkable stories um, uh, you know and and, and and I people ask me like why why do I do this you know um, and and part of the reason is that I think there's a sense um, of, of pride but also a sense of place knowing, how you got where you are today, you know, on whose shoulders do you stand? Um, we are building our lives here today, but there are so many people before us that built the foundation for us to have our lives today. And that's the value of history, um, and that's the value of knowing each other's history. Um, and uh, if you don't have that, uh, I don't think you're you're very grounded, um, and if we don't have that, uh, we don't really have a society. Um, we need to know each other's stories, and we need to know um, the journeys, both similar and and you know, different, that brought all of us, you know, to where we are today and who we are, and who we are as a country, um, who we are as a people. Um, it's all it's all woven together. So, not to get all philosophical or anything. <laughs> I think it's perfect. Um. Yeah. No. I. I just love this stuff. I. Uh, and I'm I'm forever grateful to uh, the Mariah Historical Society for preserving these books. Um. I. Th- and um, just, just to go back on an earlier thought, um, what what's one of the other amazing things about these jail ledgers is that they do have these mugshots. I mean, these, if you think about it, 1900, photography was in its infancy. It was a very expensive new technology. And yet they deployed it to document these Chinese men. Um, Also, we take it for granted now that we all have photo IDs, we carry it with us all the time, but that wasn't the case back then. And so, you know, the other part of this story is the story of America's immigration history. There were no federal immigration laws, essentially, until the Chinese Exclusion Act. That was pretty much the first American immigration law. And now we have so many. (laughs) But it really makes you question and think about a system that started with exclusion, that started with keeping someone out based on their nationality, on their ethnic background. And you know, it's funny to this day, the Chinese Exclusion Act is still the only law on the books that excludes a specific uh, ethnic group and nationality from immigration to the United States. Uh, It was repealed in 1943. So that's 60 years it was on the books. And in those 60 years, it really uh, depressed the immigration of Chinese to this country. So, when I was talking earlier about, you know, Mr. A ah, Bing, who invented the Bing cherry, or about the workers on the Transcontinental Railroad, um, many of them were not able to bring their families here. Many of them um, died here or they went back to China and were not able to come back. Um, but it's a period of 60 years that our country actively kept um, Chinese from entering the United States when they were such a contributing force to the building of this country. And even though it was called the Chinese Exclusion Act, it, uh, it morphed and other laws were attached to it that then extended it to other Asians. There was a, a, something called the Asiatic Barred Zone at some point that barred Asians from coming into the United States. So even though it started with the Chinese Exclusion Act, it, it, um, it expanded and prevented uh, most Asians from immigrating to the United States. And you know, it's funny, nobody knows that today. Yeah. Um, and uh, in 19, even though the uh, Exclusion Act was repealed in 1943, the, uh, the United States imposed a quota on the number of Chinese who could enter the country each year, and do you know what that number was? It was like 105, like a ridiculously low number. Yeah. And that quota wasn't lifted until the uh, mid 1960s with the immigration um, uh, reform uh, and the Hart-Seller Act. Uh, And I I learned something really interesting about that Hart-Seller Act in 1965, I think it is. Um, So they overhauled the immigration law, they lifted all the quotas. And um, then they uh, prioritized immigration to uh, family reunification. So people who were here could bring their families uh, to the country. Um, and they also prioritized uh, uh, people with professional degrees or skills or jobs, uh, skills that the United States needed. Um, the interesting thing about the Hart-Celler Act is, you know, then more Asians could immigrate to this country. Um, but it almost didn't pass. And the only reason it passed was that the proponents of the Hart-Celler Act sold it to the op- opponents by saying, hey, if we prioritize family reunification, and the United States is mostly white uh then most people coming in will still be white because their white people are bringing in their relatives okay and that's how they got opponents to agree to uh, lift the quotas and to pass the heart seller act well what's interesting is it backfired because at that time yeah you know um you had had, by that time you had had 80 years of a suppressed uh, immigration from Asia. And so there was this this pent up desire. So um, you had actually many more Asian immigrants who immigrated then at that time. And not only that, um, you know, a lot of white Americans and their European uh, uh, relatives, you know, their European relatives were doing actually pretty well in Europe, and they didn't want to immigrate to the United States. Okay, okay. so you know that that racist instinct that um, uh, uh, that led to the passage of, of the Immigration Reform Act um, actually backfired. Okay. Well, stay safe, both of you. And, you too. Uh, and you know, feel free to. Contact me anytime.
4: I will, thanks a lot.
0: Well, thank you again, Robin, for um, bringing Amy to our attention. I mean, I, I learned so much from listening to her. I mean, and, you know, originally I was, I was in awe when we, when we sat there and all the stuff that she shared.
4: Now, I would just like to say um, why I wanted Amy to come on for this segment. And that is that all of us who are descended of immigrants voluntarily or involuntarily to the United States of America have stories like Amy's.
0: That's a great point.
4: I said they may differ in content or context, but we all have these stories. And that is our common ground. And with the ongoing attacks on the Asian-American and Pacific Island communities, Islander communities. I thought it would be powerful to share Amy's ancestral story, part of the so-called reverse underground world road or Chinese underground road, which is part of American history, part of world history. As Amy said earlier, when getting the Mocha people to come up to record their uh, jail ledgers, Amy said it takes a village. Well, the village is our planet Earth.
0: Yeah, absolutely you know it's uh, as as she was talking you know you, you can't help but just see the parallels between you know um you know things that her own culture suffered um you know it, you can't help but relate that to you know um our, our own or our other cultures and stuff as well so it was it was um you know thank you again for bringing you know bringing this to us, it was very educational for me personally. And it, it, just like you said, it definitely takes a village and, you know, the villages, you know, you know, our, our planet, everyone deserves to get treated with um, decency and respect. Right. Uh, does anyone else have anything else that they would like to add today uh, before we wrap up today's podcast?
1: Uh, yes. Um, I must say it was quite insightful for me. I was really, um, amazed to learn that the Chinese Exclusion Act spawned I guess is how I would put it, um, exclusions of other Asian groups. Uh, And the uh, one thing in the first part of Amy's uh, presentation, uh, her talk, I was really um, amazed to learn that about the Chinese in the Civil War. So now I'm curious. I want to find out more since they were on both sides. I,
0: I know. I thought the same thing when she said that. I know. I was fascinated. Yes. And it's wild. It's like how can how can you know how can that not be just out there and publicly known something? This because that's pretty significant. You know.
1: It's uh, quite significant, and in some ways. Um what she, you know, talked about when she said she, there was these Chinese on both sides, and we know in the um, white community, there were brothers that were against each other because some was on, uh, there's sort of a reoccurrence of this happening now. Uh, I was talking with my sister, and she has uh, a son and a daughter-in-law who are, QAnoners. And <laughs> so I'm like, uh okay. And she's not, I guess she doesn't really know how to deal with this, you know, uh, except maybe now, well, let's not talk for a while. <laughs> so you can kind of relate a little bit. It's kind of odd here we are in the 21st century when you think things are really getting better and in some ways we're sort of reverting back to the old ways during those 19 during the 19th century
0: right i think also that some of the um so a lot of the issues that that we are dealing with as a society they're so deep you know what i mean to where you know if you're on one side or the other is sometimes it's hard to reach the other side because there's like a huge chasm you know between where you where you kind of are so oh yeah I, I can i can understand definitely
2: i also thought it was amazing with the names that some of the chinese people were using
0: yeah like like um, like pierce right she said yes yeah. Yeah. yes yeah, it's right.
2: gonna be hard to even um trace that um the history of them because you don't know what names and I'm now i'm wondering were they given these names, or or how do they end up with a name like that? I I, I it makes me want to hear more about that line of it of what happened. Just like with the African slaves when they were taken away right. and just given a name, right. and, and and then you can't find um, family members, you can't trace them because they're going under all different types of names, and you just don't know where to look and who is who. So I I can feel. It for her she has a lot to say and um she really needed a platform to okay. speak because um she's discovering so much you can hear the excitement in her voice mm-hmm. and i'm very happy that we were able to give her this platform to say her piece and to put her research out there you know
0: and i think we should you know definitely have her back again in the, in the future if, if she's willing to do so mm-hmm. excellent well this uh I really enjoyed this. I mean, I, I enjoyed all of these that we do, but this is, you know, I, it's, it's, a, it was a very emotional kind of thing. I felt just listening to everything that she said, you know, was, you know, it's. Uh, I'm kind of at a, at a loss for words in a way, you know, because I, I think one of the, one of the great things for me, and even Robin kind of mentioned it earlier, you know, is that, you know. Uh, uh, Chinese folks and stuff in a way have, have been here since like the 1700s, you know, and whatnot, you know, and it's it's easy to, you know, just kind of, you know, live in the moment or whatever and, and forget that, you know, um, you know, that so many different cultures contribute, contributed to um, our country and stuff today.
4: Because mm-hmm. back to you go back to Colonial America when yeah. the country was new. They yeah. like she said the coffers were empty, yeah. so they sought to fill it with the China trade. Who knows that? Yeah, they be- don't. We don't. I don't think I've ever been taught that. No, no, no. no.
0: And no. and that's a that's, yeah, something like that should that's not huge. be. Yeah, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. So, i mean, you know, I'm-
4: and now we have this whole this whole thing with China. Now it's like, yeah. hello, it's this this is déjà vu
0: yeah. again.
4: Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah. been here before.
0: Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so hopefully this will, uh, you know, have a positive impact on anybody who gets the opportunity to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to uh, thank both you and Andrea again for uh, bringing such wonderful guests and stuff to onto uh, the podcast today. Uh, so on behalf of Andrea Bear, Bobby Perez. Robin Cadell and Jackie Madison. I am John Mitchell, and we want to thank you for listening, and we hope that you will join us again in the near future. We at the North Country Underground Railroad Historical Association thank you for listening to this episode of the Adirondack Lantern Podcast. In journeying through yesteryear and now, as the North Star Underground Railroad Museum at our sable chasm keeps the lantern burning, lighting Freedom's Road.